Hello. Hey. This is Ergo. It is indeed. It's a special Ergo. It is. It's our monthly special Ergo. It is our BYP Spotlight. For those of you who are just tuning in or unaware, blackyouthproject.org is an amazing platform um, that centers the issues facing black young people in the States and around the globe. Um, Different writers, thinkers, activists contribute to this space, and we're doing a year-long series where every month one of our episodes is going to center the themes uh, prevalent and connected to that work, and we've been doing that here. So this month's BYP Spotlight is with Asha Rosa Ransby Sporn. Asha is an amazing organizer and also a little bit of a poet in there. We, uh-huh. we, we threw that in there, even though she doesn't claim it as much these days. I <laughs> uh, did st- amazing student organizing in Columbia. Uh, yeah, we don't no. even talk about that. Asha got Columbia University to divest from prisons. With other people that she organized. Yeah. <laughs> but we give her the credit. She's the only one who came on the show today. <laughs> um, and more notably, was a founding member and has been in the national leadership of BYP 100. A phenomenal space connected to BYP.org. And we've been talking about the organization and how it has shaped movement in the city and around the country. And she provides some of the perspective from her work. So we talk about entry points into organizing, what makes people feel like they can't be part of it, and how do we combat that? experience of coming back to Chicago and figuring out home. We plan a hypothetical commune. We talk about land. It's a, it's a, you know, it's what we do. It's one of those things. Asha also will note daughter of Barbara Ransby, who was the first participant of our BYP spotlight. It's all in the family. We talk about that at the end. So much, much love. All right. Without any further ado, let's get to this month's BYP spotlight on Ergo with Asha. Let's get it. I don't usually shimmy before we start, <laughs> but it felt right. Hello. Hey. We are here with a very special person, someone I, I deeply admire, movement organizer, Asha Ransby Sporn is in the house. Put up, put up, put up. That horse sound kind of got caught in my yeah, throat. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. yeah. That was it didn't little, work right. That was intense. <laughs> so, so we have a tradition, a two-part question we like to always start these conversations with. In this time... How is the world treating you, and how are you treating the world? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, I think the world is putting me in positions pretty constantly, it feels like, to have to be leaning into growth, leaning into transition. And maybe, like, ironically, I think that's, like, been challenging me to, yeah, ground myself in the things that stay the same. Like, Mm. what are the Hmm. things that through— transition and periods of growth are constant that I can like stay rooted in so yeah with that I think I'm treating the world I think with some you know intention with some humility for sure Mm. and then yeah I feel like you know always treating the world with like a little bit of impatience which I think (laughs) is needed yeah Yeah. um what have been some of those constants that you've been holding on to yeah I mean I think I'm in a period of like assessing that still so I don't have a complete answer but definitely friendships Mm. and I think like particularly like comrade friendships that are both personal and political I think yeah some political beliefs but definitely not the like ideas about how we get there Mm. um Mm -hmm. that's right can you talk a little bit more about what's (laughs) what's evolving in there yeah man I don't know how we like Change the world, for real. <laughs> I feel like that's the honest answer, you know? Yeah. And there's a lot of, like, 
you know, tried strategies for making incremental changes. There are super helpful and useful, like, models and lessons and things that we draw on and learn from. And they're always also insufficient. Yeah. Mm. And I think it's important to be grounded in, like, transformative change doesn't have, like, a formula or at least one that we know, but it probably doesn't have a formula, and we have to be constantly searching for new tactics, new strategies. There are some things, some, like, core things about organizing that I, like, train people on, that I coach folks on, that I do, that I believe in, and I'm trying to stay grounded in where we're trying to go is, like, a lot more important than being committed to there being a particular way of getting there. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. All these episodes we've done, I don't think we've, like, established what some of those core practices are or should be. When you say there are things that, like, I know, I train people on, I stand on this. There's a lot of other variables, but these are kind of some of my my constants. What, if there are three to five of them, would you say? So I think I come from, like, a trying to build a practice of, like, using both grassroots organizing tools and movement building tools, which are oftentimes separate, mm. right? So, like, the organizing toolkit being, like, running the specific campaigns and knocking on doors and getting people to show up to the city council meeting and trying to get that one, you know, thing stopped from yeah. moving through or another thing passed. And the movement building is, like, the police are fucking killing people mm. and we're going to, like, get in the streets and take advantage of people's rage and anger and all mm-hmm. of that. And so I do believe in bringing the two together. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, the top three, like, core, I don't know. Things. It doesn't have to be three. I or, just try yeah, to make yeah, it easier. Yeah, I feel you. <laughs> um, I think, like, learning how to base build, which is, like, really broad, but, like, essentially it's how we organize people. Yeah. So within that, like, how to have— just like one-on-ones, like sit down with somebody who's interested in the work over coffee for 45 minutes, like learn what they care about, what they're interested in doing, and what's going to like get them going towards the work and plug them in, you know, having folks practice doing outreach and how to like manage doing that on a large scale and then making sure you have like follow-up plans and things like that to absorb people into the work. That's like a bucket. Definitely direct action is a bucket Mm -hmm. that's like usually – you know, the fun one for people, (laughs) Um, learning how to, like, escalate, how to build a strategy of direct actions where you start in one place and you get, you know, more intense, Um, lots of different tactics within that, whether it's, like, shutting down the street or taking over, like, city meetings or running up on, like, decision makers in their neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good toolkit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good place to start. Look, can we talk one on ones for a sec? <laughs> this yes. is just going to be some real good, like organizing nerdy. <laughs> Did either of y'all have like really effective one on ones that brought you into something? Hmm. And I'll share for me too. But like, I hear that used as a tactic and like an important piece over and over again. And then I'm trying to think like, actually. Did I experience that? I kind of did, but I'm curious for y'all. That's really interesting. Not f- for me, I didn't get absorbed in with formal one-on-ones, but I've seen, I've done it. I've mm-hmm. absorbed people with that work. Uh, but no, it was more all over the place. But like coming into an organization, there was no like sit down with someone for a while? No, no, no. Because the only like organization I really like came into was BYP 100. And I knew like 
15 people. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I was in communication, but it wasn't like a formal let's go have tea yeah. thing and, and talk through these five stories or whatever. How about you? Yeah, I don't know that the one-on-one was the thing that brought me in in the first place, but there were definitely one-on-ones that brought me in closer or mm, brought me into mm-hmm. a specific like leadership position mm-hmm. or pushed me to take something on that I otherwise wouldn't have felt confident doing mm. or kept me around, honestly. That's yeah. also <laughs> has happened. You know, and then I think, like, I believe in doing one-on-ones with people even that you already know, mm. right? And, like, I could have been around you, like, socially or in protests or whatever and not really know right. your story. So, I mean, that's yeah. basically what we're doing right now. <laughs> this is just, it's a two-on-one. Yeah, it's a little two-on-one. Yeah. <laughs> a two-on-one. I've done those two. That's yeah, a good way to frame like these. Yeah, yeah. Just a little uh, recorded two-on-one. Yeah. So, yeah. A- as we are two-on-one-ing... Um, <laughs> I think now is the time to like start entering the gas that I warned you about. Okay. And just the ground kind of for folks to know. It's renewable alternative energy. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. is not, we're not, <laughs> not burning coal here. <laughs> but um, yeah, you are one of the people that I like respect and admire most. You are a, a, a organizer for the, the, the national table for the movement for black lives, or you have been like deeply invested in that space. Uh, You obviously have been in leadership and part of the founding of BYP 100. You know, I saw a lot of your student organizing you did while you were in Columbia. Uh, But I remember you from like back in the YCA wordplay days and you had like really impactful, mature poems. Is what I remember. The look on your face (laughs) right now is incredible. Of being really impressed. Um, (laughs) And I think, I think as BYP was formed, one of y'all first actions, one of the first actions was around Alec. And I remember you came up and like did an announcement and like you didn't perform nothing and you just like explained. But Damon, what's Alec? What's Alec? Alec is the American Legislative Exchange Council. Is that what that stands? Yep. So basically, you know, in the mid 2000s, early 2010s, uh, it was this lobby basically of corporate and militaristic power that was closely connected to both parties. And, like, really problematic legislation that came out of that, particularly, notably, Stand Your Ground laws mm-hmm. in, in the wake of Trayvon Martin and a lot of the, like, Arizona immigration like, yeah, stuff. Yeah, SB 1070. And I remember being so frustrated with how individual and interpersonal people were trying to talk about Trayvon Martin. And, like, it was, like, the specifics of those two people. And that was, like, the first time in real time. I saw it connected to something structural. <laughs> um, and like just since then, I talk about when I first came into BYP 100, it was like a magical room of brilliance. And it was like, this is the space that expresses how I think about the world and how I want to be activated. Whenever there was a time of unsureness, just like almost everything you said was so impactful for me, um, was like a goalpost of where my thinking should be, how, how diligent we need to be and how precise. Uh, so I'll pause there. There'll be more gas throughout the conversation, uh, but I just want you to we'll know scatter that, it. that that okay. that like as I've tried to come into my own, you have been a compass mm-hmm. in terms of how you move in space and how you think and how you lead and the example that you provide. So I just want to thank you. Wow, for your I, work. Those are some weighty words. I, t- I tried to warn you. I tried to- <laughs> um, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, and I think likewise, you've been someone who I think is always like thoughtful and grounded and thorough throughout all those spaces. So hmm. I see you back. Oh, <laughs> word. Oh, all right. I feel good. <laughs> so all those 
all that wisdom that Damon just professed to gaining from you, where were the spaces for you and the people and the ecosystems that kind of shaped your one political idea, but more importantly, just like sense of self and confidence in your ability to help transform the world? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think the youth poetry stuff was like hugely impactful. I don't really write poems anymore. I don't think I was ever like the greatest poet in the world, but there was something about young people coming together in these spaces that had like kind of a different metric for what was valuable than hmm. like classrooms mm-hmm. yeah. or even like the social yeah. dynamic of high school um, or really anywhere else and telling stories and putting words together and even the reading component of it. Hmm. I think that is like the moment where for me, I, I saw people who on their own didn't feel powerful, um, like mm. kind of come together and be a part of this like ecosystem of like young people who like had a meaningful, you know, kind of voice in in the city. So mm-hmm. I think that was important. Peter Kahn at like Oak Park High School, <laughs> like following me in the halls, like, so when are you going to come to Spoken Word Club? And finally I did. Felt like almost like a maroon space within the school. Mm-hmm. When you say that it felt like a maroon space, in in what way? Like what did that space give that the other spaces weren't? Yeah, I mean, so I went to OPRF, which is like a school school that prides itself on being very diverse. But in reality, it's segregated. The classes are tracked. There's like a disciplinary system. I just saw an article this morning actually about some of the things they're trying. And yeah, that was real. That was visible within the classes. It was visible walking down like the lunchroom, like the tables were segregated, all of that. Yeah, I don't even know if maroon space is the best word, but I think the, you know, that like youth kind of art space was one where the value system was different and Mm. people could come together and be a little bit protected from Mm. all of that. Mm. Um, And I think, you know, there were like teachers and advisors and like other people like alum who were, who helped protect that space. Listeners, if for some reason you're deeply curious about OPRF, (laughs) there's a documentary series that came out last year, I believe on Showtime called America to Me. That's all shot. It's following a few students at OPRF. And for those non-Chicagoland yeah. people, that's Oak Park River Forest. So if for some reason you just are like, I want to know more <laughs> about Oak Park River Forest High School, the good news is this is your entry point. This is your one-on-one. You are now in it. <laughs> so you seem born to be how you function. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? No, I, no. I don't. What, what do you mean? What a Tell sentence. Me. I love that. So I, I'll make it personal, right? Like for me, the consciousness that like is embodied in movement, like was something I was striving towards, but being active in this way was not in my purview of like mm-hmm. what I saw my life being. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm thinking of you like developing voice in this, you know, youth cultural space. Um, did you have a different vision for like what that voice would be deployed for? Or did you always see political work kind of being hmm. part of your your path. Hmm. Yeah, what did you think you were going to do when you grew up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a cool, try to ask that in a yeah. cooler way. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, I don't know that I had a super clear vision of True. that. I definitely think I would have thought that writing would have been more central to it. Hmm. But, you know, hey, I'm young. I definitely saw myself at the intersection of, like, building community around art and using that to bring people into 
talking about politics mm. because it's like a really effective organizing tool. <laughs> yeah. And I still believe that. And I think as like people get older, there's less spaces where you can do art things and it's not about being good at them. And so I think it's harder to like keep doing that. But I'm, I'm interested in. Yeah. Not being good at the like, like where you can write bad poems. And yeah, where still you can write bad poems. <laughs> and it's about the community and about the practice of it and about people expressing themselves. Yeah. And not like anything else, really. Are there any art forms that you are really curious about that you know you're not good at yet that you want to try? I want to like draw cartoons. Ooh. Okay. Yes. That's hot. Have you drawn a cartoon? Um, yes. But I, like, I can't draw hands that look... Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. the old hands dilemma. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> so a lot of So a lot of, like, hands behind the back. <laughs> um, but, you funny. know, that's... That's a stretch. That can in just some be scenario. your style. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Not everyone's indignant all the time. <laughs> like no one yeah. here behind the head. Um, yeah. So I think that's like what I need to learn next. Let's put us. Let's put some. Uh, <laughs> let's put some listeners on their cartoonist game. Any cartoonists you'd recommend? Nah. Nah. <laughs> yeah. I need to do some study. Mm. So I, I really like that idea of like not having to be good. And I want to try to translate that to like into the political spaces and maybe even fast forward to kind of like where we are now. Because I think I think there's a lot of like straw man folks have about like why they're not moved to participate. So that mm-hmm. we've been talking about this idea of like this woke straw man that it's really not actually what's happening for folks who are activated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of people can use that as like, oh, that's why I don't fuck with that shit because they, they're too overwoke. But I think be, underneath that, there is a real fear of I am not good enough or I don't have the vocab enough or I'm not political enough to be political. Or pure enough. Right. Yeah. And so the idea of like not being good at the politics but still being able to show up, how how does maneuvering or massaging that dynamic play for you? Yeah, I think that's a super important dynamic to dig into. And in the one-on-ones that I have, it's something that I hear a lot. People Hmm. are like, oh, I didn't join until whenever, or I haven't joined yet because I just felt like I wasn't there yet. Or like a lot of like, oh, I don't know if I would run for this leadership position because I'm not whatever the idea of the person who should be organizing or leading Mm -hmm. is. And like we started, like none of us have the like magic, potion to change the world we're actually all trying to figure it out and if we think we do we're wrong because we haven't done it yet that's the person who definitely shouldn't be in leadership (laughs) it's the person who's like i got your answer for you right here right now yeah so i think we try to be intentional about in byp 100 i don't know if we always get it right but like even just some of the like approach of like anti-respectability like you don't have to be this polished person Um, to come into the room, I think we do that. But then there's still, like, a different set of metrics of what people think they have to have figured out and be good at. Mm. If not coming to our spaces, where are we expecting people to develop yeah. their politics, to develop their skills as organizing? And I think if we're making people feel that way, then we're doing something wrong. Yeah, so as much or as little or as specific or as vague as you want to be, what are some of the things that you hear people say They're not this enough, and that's why they haven't stepped into the room. Because I think it's important for people listening who maybe have that same feeling to, like, be affirmed that, like, that's okay. Let's do it like a 
like a 400 on one right now? <laughs> um, I think one I've heard is like, I don't have enough of a vision. Hmm. I don't have enough like experience doing organizing. But it's like, you know, come get the mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. Um, we got you. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the political analysis is like a big one. Like, And oftentimes that comes from people who actually do have a really good political analysis. It's just maybe not in the exact same terminology mm. or whatever, um, which is kind of like the least important part of it all, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing I think I, I, I feel or perceive the most is like I don't have the language, yeah. the vocabulary. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And, you know, just like any space, I think any space that's specific has a specific language, right? Mm-hmm. Like even the language of one-on-ones that we're using, like yeah. that's just two like numbers in a, <laughs> a article, you know, <laughs> like, um, but it has a specific yeah. meaning. So there's a use for that, but it shouldn't be a barrier. Yeah. For you, even right now, I'm trying to not idealize you as that leader, right? That like has it more figured out. Because you also do a very good job of being transparent and being vulnerable about, like, figuring it out and struggling or feeling uncomfortable as well. But there is still this perception of, like, you knew what was up and, like, we're catching up. But that couldn't be true. You've had to have grown. So what are some of the those things when you first came into the space six, seven years ago now that now you see, like, oh, I didn't have this language or I didn't have this analysis that now feels much more rooted or grounded? Hmm. Like, I have, like, a little bit of, like, social anxiety. I'm, like, a little awkward. Um, I definitely (laughs) don't feel like I fit that, like, charismatic. I'm not, like, an orator, Mm -hmm. however you say that word. And I think I treated it for a long time. Like, I have to, like, grow at not being anxious or, like, Mm -hmm. learn how to not be awkward. And I think I've come a little bit more into, like— that's just who I am and how I'm yeah. going to act. And, like, I can—yeah, that's going to be how I connect with people, not something that I hide to connect with people. Mm-hmm. And the rest of these motherfuckers is awkward, too. So what about— <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's just, like, maybe a personal thing. Mm-hmm. A big learning, like, BYP 100 was formed in this, like, heightened movement moment. I and many of us maybe underestimated how much we were going to have to shift when that was going to change. And inevitably, like, that moment wasn't going to be a forever moment. Mm -hmm. Instead of trying to make it just last longer, we could have pivoted better to figuring out how to take better advantage of the next heightened moment, whatever shape that takes. That's something I'm really interested in, like, sitting more with that's a really interesting yeah, point with it. because okay. it, <laughs> if that's your entry point it can feel like well now we're just on this trajectory where mm-hmm. it's going to keep escalating and keep changing and keep moving and we're in the 60s again right and <laughs> then and we're in this idealized version of the yeah. 60s right where everything's up for grabs and there's no recalibration and no pushback and no like we know that everything in movement moves in these ebbs and flows and has these pauses and these reactivation like it's a much more, because it's life-creating, it's a much more organic process than that. But I think from what I'm hearing and what I just know from experience, like that can be jarring because you're so used to a certain pace and a certain expectation of change also that then when it starts slowing down or changing or 
calcifying. It feels like we're doing something wrong. Like we're not moving fast enough. And you mentioned impatience up top. What have been some things that you've learned through this, you know, the ebbs and the flows of of what happens in world changing? Yeah. I mean, I think one learning is like the moment you come in shapes you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like I came in a little bit early in Mm -hmm. it that I got some of those like nuts and bolts organizing like tools, even if we didn't have to call thousands of people to get folks to come out in the streets, Mm -hmm. um, which is like the difference. But Hmm. yeah, I think that is a big learning and like what people are going to feel both willing to do and then expect to have to do. Um, so yeah, I think for a lot of folks who came in around the time of, you know, Ferguson and these other uprisings in different cities, you know, it was like a period of a few years where it was, there was uprisings in Baltimore and Charlotte, like everywhere it mm-hmm. felt like things were on fire mm-hmm. and young black people were leading that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so if that's when you come in, that's kind of going to shape your feeling of the urgency of what's at stake, what you're willing to do. But it also means you're organizing where you don't have to do all the one-on-ones or the, like, one-to-one mm. outreach. Because people are active. People right. are activated. And then I think mm, this, like, tightrope balance of, like, both being reflective to prepare and then also being quick, you know, in the reflections of how some of the response to Trump being elected, like, I think a lot of folks went into, like, retreat, like, we got to figure out a really good Mm -hmm. strategy for this mode. But it was almost like, actually, we have people are, like, we need to take advantage of. Hmm. That's one example of a political moment, you know. And the people who took advantage of it, like, the Women's March happened, and people went to the airports during, like, the Muslim ban. I feel like those are, like, the two big Hmm. mobilizations and the um, March for Our Lives. And, well, well but that, that was, was that, Parkland. That's Parkland. That's before? No, that's no, after. No, that was after, but okay. it wasn't. You're saying in that particular moment, not since Yeah, then. sort of like in, like, right after. Oh, like right, the, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. A few right, months right, after. Right, 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 Yeah. Yeah, like, what could we have been prepared to ask people to do beyond those things? Hmm. Mm. You know, we talk about these pivot points. So those things happen, and then there's the way that some people have been more visibly active since then. And then some people have been, I, I, I hear what you're saying about that, like that pullback and strategy move. And at the same time, like seeing there are lots of people who were in no way visibly politically active. And I'm not saying that the framework is always perfect and it's always the most radical, but the idea of, you know, in 2014, 2015, there were people saying that protesting doesn't do anything. And then there's a million people marching who were those, some of those same people five years later, right? Like, the arguments that were being used against you <laughs> and that movement in that moment then become defunct by, you know that those are no longer the arguments and you can see them for the straw man as they are because then those same tactics are used when people who didn't feel like their bodies were on the line then have their bodies on the line after Trump is elected. So then it, it like shifts, like the way I think about the strategy is that it moves where the vanguard is, right? So if being out in the streets was the thing that was at the, you know, the edge, then when more people are willing to do that, then it becomes, okay, then what are we trying to pull people to next in their tactics and in their understanding? Does that ring true at all? I think in part, but I want to add a little bit of nuance that I see because blackness is an important factor in Mm -hmm. this, right? Mm -hmm. I think that like, and then also like Ferguson and Charlotte and Baltimore and the ways that people were responding 
I don't think it's the same tactics sure. as mm. like the women's march. Yeah. But yeah, I think that people will always be overly critical of like black people in general, but specifically black protest and black yeah. resistance. And that's kind of how anti-blackness functions. It's like, oh, we're not saying you're like less than human or shouldn't have rights, but you're just not doing whatever right. the thing is in the right way, right. no matter what you do. <laughs> mm-hmm. I do think that's a part of the dynamic yeah, of sure. it. But I, I get what you're saying. You know, people are willing to do different tactics and read them differently depending on the political moment, what they personally feel is at stake, yeah. and who I think who's leading also. Mm-hmm. We talked a lot about, and I think you just articulated, the, the Trump's presidency being a real, like, political opportunity to, like, move people, to provoke people who are now, like, shocked or jarred by it. Um, does that still feel true for you? <laughs> Um, because when when I was looking at it, I didn't feel like enough people were discussing how his base and the push for him was a counter response to our movement. I don't I don't think it continuously gets discussed. Is that maybe like right at first and kind of in like some Charlottesville discourse, but at large, I feel like it was an anti-black response to black liberation. Um like almost more than anything else. And then probably a response to like the failures of neoliberalism. Uh, but that's, you know, that makes me feel good <laughs> to, to look at the world that <laughs> way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about us. Um, yeah, I think it's a combination for just of yeah. that and the economic reality of yeah. the wide And then xenophobia. Gap. Right. But, but I think that's more of a tactic addressing those than it is at the root of what this is. Because, yeah, people live in those contradictions all yeah. the time anyway. Yeah, I mean, I I think all those things are connected, though. Like, I think the resurgence or mobilization of, like, white nationalists around the world is connected to neoliberalism Mm -hmm. and, like, reactionary far-right leaders coming into power to push, like, a neoliberal agenda, but also, I mean, some people call it, like, neo-fascist. Like, Mm -hmm. whatever the next kind of iteration of how political systems that serve, like, capitalist elite or whatever is. Yeah. So I think, yes, and I feel like those two things that you named are connected. Does it still feel like an opportunity for you? Oh, an opportunity? I mean, (laughs) it's been a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think there will and can be political moments within it. Mm -hmm. And there have been, right? You know, when he— started escalating around some of the immigration stuff. I think that was, like, in 2018. There were mobilizations in response to that. I don't think Trump's existence or being in office himself is quite that. I mean, there's these impeachment proceedings, which, if you really look, like, in the scheme of the things that he's done, it's not, like, the worst thing that he's done or the thing that would. (laughs) It feels insincere. It feels disingenuous. It feels like we don't want to talk about the real conspiratorial harms that we are like complicit in or that support our agenda. So we're going to like isolate. That's what it feels like. to me. And it feels like pre-election tactics. Yeah. Yeah. Which is smart tactically. Like I'm, and I'm not like it has to be pure, mm-hmm. but I, I think like, yeah. Keeping him on the defensive is a tactic from the Democrats. Yeah. I mean, we I, never talk about national politics. Yeah. <laughs> this is so weird. But yeah, what do you, um, so if it doesn't feel like a necessarily an opportunity We've talked a lot about like just creating cognitive dissonance for yourself. Like, mm-hmm. how do you separate yourselves from the the inundation of all this stuff? How are you making your way through through this daily sludge? You know, we're here, <laughs> and 
you know, we give a shit about each other. And so we're going to try some things that maybe hopefully will work. I've been trying to come a little bit out of the U.S.-centricness of, I mean, really of like most of the work that I've done and not in an uncritical of the U.S. way. But just to look at, I think it takes you out of this is what movements look like. These are the tactics that we use to just like look at what's going on in other parts of the world. And like strangely, when you're out of some of the details of it, because you just don't know them, you can maybe think a little Mm -hmm. bigger picture. So like been following some of what's going on in Chile. And I think that's like a good example of, you know, the Metro Fair hike was the thing that was the spark. But it's like the broader political conditions that people are actually fighting and organizing against. And so I think that's like a good way to think about it. Like we have an analysis of the big picture things we want to change. Like it was in response to the Metro hike, but their demand is that they rewrite the constitution, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, So yeah, I think always having that big picture analysis, but then also knowing that how do we kind of prepare ourselves to be ready um, to come in with a vision and an agenda and ready to organize when people are taken to the streets around whatever trigger moment. And have some lasers on you. <laughs> That's one thing that has emerged in this moment is the importance of the laser. Have you seen this? He told me about this. So yeah. in Chile, they brought down a police drone by pointing 50 lasers at it from different oh, directions. Wow. And it like fried the ocular mm. function. And um, and in Hong Kong, they use lasers to shut down the facial recognition software. Mm-hmm. So they shown that and so they couldn't do it. But uh, yeah, who knew? Lasers are the are the yeah. move, folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can now get your Ergo branded lasers. <laughs> Ergoradio.com. We should do that for real, actually. Yeah, that's, that would be interesting. That's Let's hot. talk. <laughs> in that in that global context, because mm-hmm. something that we were talking about before you even got here today mm-hmm. is how do you find information about what's happening in the rest of the world that mm-hmm. obviously you can still be skeptical about, but you feel like is in any way <laughs> useful and and true. <laughs> Like, where are you going for your for your facts? Yeah, I mean, in a, like, ideal world, it would be great to feel like there were more global movement connections, at mm-hmm. least that I was tapped into, because it is it is very difficult so to get information. So it doesn't have to be filtered through a middle person, basically. Yeah, and yeah. then know, like, who to trust or what the groups with the different agendas and narratives are. It's very difficult. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think Twitter is where I like to look because it feels like maybe the um, least, like, filtered. um, Who are you following for some global stuff? Who am I following? Yeah. I think it's less that I actually follow specific people, but if it's like, oh, there's, you know, an article that I see in CNN or New York Times about this thing happening in the world, then I'll try to find Mm. the Mm. hashtag that people there are using and Mm. kind of explore from there. So That's hot. That's that's a good good move. Yeah, Yeah. like, (laughs) I feel like that would be the best way to know from the people on the ground here Mm -hmm. what was going on if I wanted to know. And so, (laughs) yeah. That makes so much sense. That's I don't know move. why I didn't think yeah. of that more Thanks. explicitly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was really, really useful. <laughs> so um, where are you at with M4BL, Movement for Black Lives, like strategy table? You were kind of the person that was the voice that felt the most plugged into that space. Where are you like, at with that? That you know. Yeah, that I <laughs> okay. know. Yes. yes. I'm like, not. No, not. Not in the world, but like a person that I would see. Um, <laughs> Who we can get on the yeah. show on a week's notice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I haven't been like, in specifically repping 
BYP 100 in the, in that space in a minute now. Okay. Um, I'm not the most plugged in, but I know, I mean, yeah, for people like listening, m for bl Movement for Black Lives Coalition, kind of Black-led groups that were organizing around the time of, of Ferguson and the kind of like, quote-unquote, Black Lives Matter movement was sort of a vehicle of those groups coming together and trying to build like longer-term strategy and just really stay connected. So there's like a five-year strategy for building power, reaching 10% of Black people across the country. I think similarly that space to like some of the things I talked about with BYP 100, like when a formation comes into being in a particular type of political moment and then has to shift, that's always a process of shedding and holding on to and like refinding where it belongs, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I think that's been relevant too. Hmm. I'm going to ask, it's not a super personal question, but I'm going to try to move from like the we to the you. Okay. Whether that's in an organizing space, a not political space in general, where are you feeling at home these days? Back in the city now for for a year. Uh, How's it felt being being back in Chicago? That is an interesting question. I think it's kind of like a weird thing to move back to a place. Hmm. Especially when you feel like you've been like you've been kind of around, you felt mm-hmm. still connected. But no, when you come back, you're like, oh no, I've been away. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the place is different. Communities are, like, different. Relationships are different. And so how do you navigate things that are, like, both new and old and different? Yeah. So, yeah, I guess that's just been, like, reflective. I think it's emphasized the ways that things aren't permanent. Communities (laughs) aren't. Places aren't. I guess relationships and even, like, history that stay. (laughs) You know, I think for a while I struggled— Especially because I'm in like I'm in a national leadership role at BYP One Hundred, so yeah. I spent a lot of time on the road. I really struggled to be connected with people if we weren't like doing something together, <laughs> mm-hmm. even if we had for a period of time. Yeah. So definitely have been trying to be intentional about reconnecting with people, not just in Chicago but in general. Like yeah. who maybe we don't organize together now, but at one point in time we did a thing together that mattered a lot mm-hmm. to us. How do yeah. you how do you manage the I'm projecting here. How do you manage the <laughs> guilt and shame that comes with that? That's something that can almost affect me on a daily basis. You know, I love these people to death. I gave all of myself. We have these like memories that I will never forget, but I struggle very greatly without proximity to be connected to folks and I feel very much ashamed and guilty like particularly like relationships in Ferguson the people who like Mm. it feels like a family member it feels like you know an aunt or a cousin you don't talk to for years and I feel really really bad about it do do you struggle with that and like how do you work through it yeah um I definitely do feel that you know it can be easy to move on from that and be like oh this was only a political relationship like I couldn't maintain it outside of doing some organizing or whatever it is but then I, like, thought about my personal relationships and, like, <laughs> you know, that's the same thing. Yeah. Like, we yeah. lived near each other and then, you know, I was in Harlem and you were in Brooklyn and so then we didn't see each other anymore or, Proximity you know, I'm, I'm in Chicago and you're wherever else and then we struggle. But I don't know that I, like, solved that. I think, and this is something with my, like, awkwardness in organizing is, like, I would rather— 
be awkward than like not organize people mm-hmm. you know like I would rather feel uncomfortable like going up to somebody and having a conversation than not have a community or not like be building with people to change the world and so <laughs> I guess I apply the same thing yeah. you know even when we talk about like organizing like you can't be friends with everyone that you organize with and if you try to do that you're going to organize on a pretty small scale and mm-hmm. I think that's okay There's so many people that we connect with in meaningful ways, and we don't have the emotional capacity to be there, like, every day or even every week or month, like, support person, and that's okay. And we can still be connected and, like, value whatever Mm -hmm. the valuable thing Mm -hmm. is. Yeah, it does create, when you're, you know, in the organizing submarine with someone, it creates these, like, very intense and sometimes fleeting connections unless you come in kind of with that expectation or understanding at least that that's part of what happens, discomfort with the distance is a real is a real thing. I asked about guilt and shame. Has there been times where you've been proud of yourself about how you've been a comrade or showing up for people or connected or reconnected? Yes. I reconnected with someone yesterday, and one of the things we were talking about was like, was anyway, drama. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we were just kind of patting ourselves on the back for being around a lot of drama, but not really like a player in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) That's that's the whole whole move. We're going to put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that. Okay, okay, okay. Um, But not, I mean, and not just drama, because that could be like minimizing. There's also like real conflict and hurt, I think. That can sever a lot of relations. Like, oh, you organize with these people. And so even though you weren't a part of this conflict or division or separation, because mm-hmm. we don't talk, it's awkward to talk to you. And I think I've cut past some of those, particularly in coming back to Chicago. Hmm. You know, my comrades may operate a particular way. And this isn't to throw shade at anyone. But I think just like the fact that we are working towards similar visions of black liberation, of like justice in the world, of all of that means that we should be connected with one another, even across like serious disagreement and conflict. So I think I've been proud of like being able to reach out to people across like, you know, some lines where I think there's like real Hmm. hurt. Yeah, that resonates. I don't know. I guess I'm just talking about myself now. (laughs) Um, But yeah, just, just that feeling of Having a lot of close proximity to drama, to real conflict, to real harm, to real like embodied dysfunction. And I don't say that like with stigma. That's part of what oppression is. It is traumatizing. It is debilitating. Um, And that has like impact on our our functionality and our body and our thinking and our brain. Literally, the conflict that I find myself seeing and the the faction is, I don't know the word, but like when people break up, basically, uh, it really breaks my heart. It really breaks my heart. But again, I think I see a maturity that that you have in being able to maneuver that. So how do you stay out of the bullshit? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think we are three yeah. out of the bullshitters. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, what, how do you even think about that? Well, so my friend and I were talking about this last night too. And we were like, actually, what if we are a part of it <laughs> yeah. and we just don't know? We're just avoiding oh. it. And then that was too scary, a, like rabbit hole to go down. So yeah, we yeah. stopped. But... <laughs> That is also, you know, potentially it's true. It's like, like, my friend group has no annoying friend. It's like, well, that means you're the <laughs> Yeah, so I think, you know, trying to stay, like, a little bit self-reflective in yeah, that yeah, is, uh-huh. like, you know, I don't think I've operated, like, perfectly or always in the most principled way or anything. I don't think anyone has. 
Yeah, I don't know. I think just like having some grounding practices and like what you really care about. This is both one of my biggest strengths and weaknesses. I'm just like a very loyal person that can kind of, which can mean I can like just hold on to shit forever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't let go of relationships or friendships or even just like connections with people. I don't let go of those things easily. And so mm. I think, and I'm an Aries, so I like to push through things and like get it out in the open. Mm. I can handle this. Yes. <laughs> yes. What about you, Nim? How do you stay out of the out of the fray? I think I'm avoidant in yep. ways that I try to really check for the privilege of certain communication skills. Mm-hmm. So like, I think there's a point of panic in conflict that can lead to escalation that like, I am comfortable speaking right now. So like I can see where the tension is and speak towards it. And I think if in a moment, like if you get upset or enraged or feel limited in your language, that can like mm. escalate your your position. And so usually if it gets to let's talk about it, I feel very comfortable in that space. And I've I've observed that that's not comfortable for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like the the four hour get to the bottom of it thing doesn't really like throw me off. <laughs> it's only when people like give up or say that it's not valuable, that then I get discouraged. Um, So yeah, I think because I'm a talker (laughs) is is a big part of it. But I think I struggle with one, like positionality, particularly when I see that someone's unwell or if Mm -hmm. I see someone does not have the same access to privilege, right? Like when power is asymmetrical, how do you hold someone accountable, right? Like I feel like accountability is relative to capacity. So if like someone's functioning at or beyond their capacity, it's really, I think for me, because I'm a softy, uh, it's a lot of like <laughs> compassion. So I think I think that's one of my greatest strengths and something that's that I can be afraid of is that I can be very compassionate for people who are harmful, for people who are operating suboptimally, or for people who don't even fuck with me, right? Or people who yeah. like on dirt, active dirt with me. I can still be I'm more likely to think about like what I did wrong hmm. when someone does something wrong to me than be like, hey, you need to you need to account for this. So I'm not going to take that. You're like more compassionate toward them than toward yourself, you think? I, I do. I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. That rings true for sure. Yeah. Where, where's your compassion directions going? Yeah. What you said resonates for sure. I think there's like a reason why everybody shows up the way that they show up that <laughs> like you can either choose to understand or not. And maybe that's like too, maybe that sounds just like too flat or whatever, but yeah, I think there's always, like, a, a background to be understood. And I try to, like, look at people in relation to how they show up in that way. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Let's talk she safe, we safe kind of as an umbrella. And I think there are, like, large political and, you know, analytical dynamics to what that campaign is but i think it also ties very specifically mm-hmm. to what we're talking about now and like in the interpersonal and in conflict and in like power and position and privilege right. asymmetry and that was just my way to try to segue just bringing in gender and sexuality in the conversation without having like a concrete question <laughs> but it would be almost inappropriate to like just talk about blackness flatly uh, or movement flatly i i will place myself what i think last let's say 100 years 10 years, 50 years, anywhere in between that. What I think one of the primary internal contradictions of iterations for black liberation is our flatness around patriarchy and cis-heterosexism. And it has shown up historically, and I think it is present contemporarily. What, what is a struggle for me is that I see that the work 
of having to address that falls disproportionately on the people who are most harmed by it, mm-hmm. categorically. I guess I'll flip it. Like, where do you find, where do you see hope or progress or opportunity in addressing what feels like we've been so stagnant on or so, like, something that feels like it's a crisis? Yeah. That was a lot. You don't even have to answer it like that. Yeah. You can just talk. <laughs> so, so when, uh, Daniel, when you asked me um, the question about home. Yeah. The first thing that popped in my head, so there's this group called Movement Generation that talks about this whole like just transition framework, which is like about the environment and the economy and our government systems. How do we, you know, like shift them towards something that's just. Generation move, you said? Movement movement generation. generation. Ah. And so when they do this workshop on this framework, they start by breaking down what eco means, Mm -hmm. what economy means, and what ecosystem means. And so eco actually means home. Mm. Economy means the management of home. And ecosystem is like the set of relationships that make up home. With that, (laughs) I'm going to connect it back, I promise. Shout out etymology. Um, (laughs) So, you know, that's like cool. Uh, I feel like people always like, "Mm, do that. But um, but but like the reason that matters, I guess, if you think about like our political economy as just a country or like a globe, right? The economy is structured in a way that's capitalist. It's anti-Black. Our economy is built on slavery and patriarchy, right? Like built up through these, you know, this way that the world has been structured, which happened through colonization, deeply rooted in patriarchy and the ways that's connected to white supremacy. And so I think that exists both on the macro and the micro Mm -hmm. um, in the way that like the idea of citizenship in the U.S. used to mean property owning white men, mm-hmm. and the property they own was also including talking about their family, yeah. right? Um, and so you have these like units of quote unquote citizens of nuclear families that own property and their white picket fence, and that's the image of like who's deserving of the American dream mm-hmm. or you know equality or mm-hmm. whatever prosperity. And so I guess the moment of hope is then thinking of like, well, what are the ways that we're figuring out how to restructure home and create ecosystems, like sets of relationships, and manage those relationships and manage our communities, our homes, in ways that are based in different sets of values. Mm -hmm. That's where like my queer politics comes in, which isn't just about identity, But it's also about saying, I want to build communities that put the people who are most at the margins, who are considered most like queer or different or undeserving at the center of how we build out who needs to be uplifted Mm. and supported and who needs safety and all of that um, in our communities. So I guess that's like to take it to the micro. Mm. And I think that's kind of like the idea behind connected to the idea behind She Safe, We Safe, which is that in order for us to imagine or get to safety for any of us, we have to be thinking about who is most vulnerable and at the margins. Mm. Can we play a game build out of that? Sure. It's a hypothetical. (laughs) So obviously this reforming of home exists not in a vacuum. It exists in our world and People do it every day and there's a lineage of it. One of the like most concrete lineages or ways to understand that is the like model of building a commune off the out in the woods or whatever. What I want to play is I want to say, let's build Asha's commune. Uh, what are the buildings there? What are we eating? If you want to, who's there? 
like some of like the practices. What kind of activities we got going on? Okay. So I don't know where it is. Okay. <laughs> fictional place. Um, is there a fictional place that you would put it? Like from a book or a movie or something ooh. like that? I'm going to try to get to that by the end. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, I think it needs to be small enough that like decisions can be made collectively. Mm-hmm. Or at least there's like subgroups within it. Mm-hmm. Um, but big enough that we can take care of most of our needs or at least we're like neighboring other like ecosystems of people mm-hmm. who we can like have some respectful like collaboration exchange, and exchange yeah, with some shared infrastructure yeah 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 the buildings um the construction of them should happen cooperatively okay. because that just seems like efficient but then i feel like people can choose where they live based on their set of like priorities or desires around it could be like how much you want to interact with people. Yeah. Maybe there's specific people you want to be with. Maybe you, you know, want to be around people who are, you know, potentially along gender lines, whatever it is. People can do that. And then there's some way that people's homes get like personality affied. Yeah. Yeah, you need commune space for introverts because that's always the knock is like we're all in this shared room. And it's like sometimes people want to no. like have a little room yeah. as yeah. their space. Yes, absolutely. People <laughs> should be able to like, you know, I think have things that are that are theirs and have yeah. boundaries and stuff like that. Then I think work, there should be some balance of like people doing work that's just like needed to be done. And then people doing work that's like a thing that they're passionate about. And mm-hmm. so like. Maybe it's like a two and three days out of the week or two and two days out of the week, something yeah. like that. Yeah, I think we got to be growing our own food. Mm-hmm. We have to be in like a zero waste yeah. type situation. Mm-hmm. So it depends on like how far into the future, you know, we are. Like, are we still mm. holding on to shit from mm. like this one? Assuming we're still holding on yeah. to shit. Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know. The unlearning shit that we all got to do is some deep shit. Um, So probably everybody is in some type of, I don't know if it's like an unlearning circle or a relearning circle Mm. or something. Definitely all of the men, especially the cis men. Yeah, I mean, I would just say masculine folks in general and some type of like deconstructing masculinity situation everybody probably is going to go through some consent education um just off orientation week alone like yeah to, no to but start it's, it's and then let's ongoing. keep it wrong i know i'm saying from day one <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 we're like really in study and practice yeah, practice yeah, yeah. around like how we want to be yeah oh it's already a lot <laughs> It's going to be a busy, busy comedy. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then like we can have some turn ups. Yeah. I think definitely meals. Turn ups and turnips. Turn up, turn ups with turnips. Yeah. Sure. Folks. <laughs> Do you like turnips? I don't. That- it just, he just the, likes it was just cor- the pun. corny puns. Okay. I'll take a pun I mean, over a root vegetable okay. every day of the week. <laughs> you know, I like root vegetables. Mm-hmm. So. Turnips are maybe at the bottom of my ranking of root vegetables, though. Yeah. You got to mix them with something else. Yeah. I'll what take, are, a, I'll take not- a parsnip over a turnip. What are other root? Okay. Parsnip, turnips. Carrots, Carrot. sweet potatoes, potatoes, onions. Or onions are a bulb. Beets. Beets. Okay. Let's see what else felt. Radishes are a root vegetable. I'm so vegetable ignorant. The more you know. <laughs> All right. And then lastly, 
have you come to a location? I mean, I feel like anything I say is going to be fucked up. Like, if I choose <laughs> right. a place that, you know, I have no connection to, then that's, like, colonization. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm going to just stick with, you know, it's a fictional place. <laughs> yeah, I lied. I don't have a place. That's fine. I want to go deeper <laughs> into what that just happened for you. Okay. Because I think that's a big question that, like, I'm trying to talk more about, but I feel like— I'm just, like, platituding and, like, talking about land. Like, even before identity oppression, like, even before race, gender, class, I feel like the central human sin, if we want to call it that, is the domination of land. Uh, And, like, how that then looks in the nation-state formation and then borders and, like, Mm -hmm. ownership. And, like, obviously people need to have some type of claim or, like, domain or not Mm -hmm. be able to be displaced. Uh, But, like, land ownership feels like what all of this is about, like there wouldn't be police if it wasn't for this territory. They wouldn't be, we wouldn't be able to extract resources if it wasn't for this like n- notion of, of ownership. That feels like everything can c- connect back to that. Uh, but I don't know how to like make that a real conversation for people. And it becomes very like pie in the sky. And it becomes very like, well, what are you going to do? Yeah. Or like, like that's, and yeah. there's not really a clear answer. Just like with any of these things, there isn't a clear, but that seems like the one that people get stuck most yeah. on. How you feeling about the land? Yeah, how am I feeling about the land? Well, okay, <laughs> just like with your premise, I'm always a little hesitant of like any political like framework that isn't centering people, right? Like I think it's domination, and yes, domination of land, but like there's always a people component mm-hmm. to okay. that. Um, and patriarchy is a like, it's a social thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think, I get that it's and believe that it's connected to domination of of land too, but it's also about, you know, domination of people who are not cis and who are not men. Mm-hmm. How am I feeling about land given that like humans' relationship to it mm-hmm. at the moment is like mostly structured around domination? It feels connected to the conversations around blackness and indigeneity. Which, you know, black folks in general, folks don't see as indigenous to a place. Like, black folks aren't included when mm-hmm. we talk about indigeneity, which, you know, is connected to sort of, like, justified relationships to land. So I think there's something to unpack there. Yeah, You know, I think the history of land stewardship and the role that, you know, displacement has played in that, you know, black folks who are descended from enslaved people are not immigrants, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we're forcibly brought here. And so that's a different narrative than being settlers. Yeah, I think that there is some harm that has happened to the globe and to each other and to each other's lineages that will not be erased. Mm-hmm. And that has to be a part of how we relate to both one another and to the land. It's mm-hmm. not going to go away, mm-hmm. and we can't find— and this, I guess, is a critique of my own unwillingness to name a place. Like, we're not going to get rid of complicated and problematic relationships to one another in the land fully. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we can do is name those things. Mm-hmm. If we use, like, a reparations framework, it's about acknowledgement of harm yeah. and reparation to those who've been harmed. Mm, not about walking it back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I yeah. think we can think to the land, to the environment, to the people, to the ancestors the same. Mm. All right. This might be uh, this my last All right. one and a half type of thing. <laughs> Sorry. So over the 200 episodes, your one part questions have become two part questions yeah. and your two part questions have become five part questions. I'm very sorry. I'm, I'm very, comfortable with okay. it. <laughs> All right. But I just want everyone to track this pattern. Yes. Here. yes. So like kind of with that of 
we're not going to be able to walk it back. These things are embodied. We have to name them. We have to work to repair them. I'm thinking of someone listening to this who's kind of in that early bucket of like not yet active, but maybe will soon be showing up to a space, particularly back to kind of my premise of patriarchy being one of the primary contradictions within liberatory spaces. Mm -hmm. What are some things folks can check for and how they show up, right? Like you might not have read all the theory and all the, you know, bell hooks yet and have the language, but what are some like things that have been patterned now that we should start checking for like at the gate, no matter where folks are at? Folks should be mindful of their power, both in like a positive and like also a negative way Mm. um, in any space, right? The ways that we're like privileged to assert our ideas or think that we're important or feel like we have a right to a thing are maybe the things that we're not like thinking about Mm. why. And so we should try to be cognizant of that. And then same to like the reasons why we feel insecure, not worthy, or like someone else should be leading or we don't know are the things that we should also, you know, become aware of and lean into. So that's like one. Yeah. 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 And then I think like, think about anti-blackness, how it's showing up in this space, which it is. Think about how gender and patriarchy are showing up in this space because it is. How how does it often? Oh, oh, the patriarchy. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I think it, it shows up in terms of who feels empowered to correct people, yeah. um, to think that their ideas are valid, to be more eager, willing to step into a leadership position, who signs up for specific types of labor or things, yeah. um, whether that's like being public speaking or being on a platform or doing, you know, there's different types of tasks that are seen as important. And there are other things like setting up and cleaning up (laughs) or taking notes or creating the handouts or just some of the things that are really essential to creating the container of a space but are gendered. Um, Yeah, what's the gendered breakdown of who makes photocopies? (laughs) (laughs) Like just as a pivot point, like who is doing the copying? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's like, I think it's women. I think it's femme folks. I think it's you know, trans and gender non-conforming people, but it's not, like, straight cis dudes who are, like, looking to what logistical thing is missing and filling that gap. Yeah. Basically, you just, in the last four minutes, like, gave very clear guidelines to the thing that we have spent a long time trying to communicate. So thank you for for saying (laughs) it that way. Let's... Let's check out and get out of here. Do you have a piece that you needed to, that's going to hurt your soul? That should be in the document. All right, do it. All right. That's fine. So I I definitely didn't want to forefront it. But, you know, in this spotlight, like, there is some connection beyond just your BYP-itness uh, that, I, that I don't see, like, talked about a lot mm-hmm. to that question. Like, you seem born for this. Mm-hmm. Your mother mm-hmm. is someone who we, but I, like, love and honor to death and, like, view as, like, a second mama for me. Uh, you are Barbara Ransby's daughter. Yeah. And I've always yeah. been very interested because, like, I tiptoe <laughs> around talking about that because I, I see, I never really see y'all together that often. Like, hmm. I've seen y'all a lot, obviously, a lot over the years, but it's usually separately. Hmm. And as somebody who has a, a, a parent of some type of prominence, like, I understand trying to, like, navigate that. Yeah. Uh, and you're, like, in the field, right? And, like, so I'm not doing stand-up right now. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, how, how you know, what is the the, the, the value of, of having that legacy? Is there any burden? Is there any, like, 
discomfort in moving because it, it feels like, you know, it has prepared you to function in this world in ways that are very admirable to me. Yeah. I appreciate you asking that question, even to the question of home, too. Like, that's relevant. Both of my parents, I mean, specifically my mom. Shout out to Peter. Peter, the, but you know, I also, <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, my other side is also a lineage of communists. Yeah. Anyway, I could go into that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think have always been in a political family, like movement and organizing has always been, or at least activism, I think as a kid mm-hmm. was sort of probably more what I saw. They were things that were a part of the world, you know. Engaging the world was to figure out how you wanted to shape it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I I include my mom in that, like, friendship, comradeship <laughs> category of people. Like, you know, we talk a lot about this stuff, and we, you know, we'll, like, sometimes share things that we're reading or that we're working on or we're struggling with mm. or— Whatever. We don't always agree. So, you know, some people have have witnessed um, us us (laughs) going at it politically. How does that go? Um, (laughs) Because, like, to to place, like, with with my parents, I'm now in a place where, like, they seek me for advice. mm -hmm. And, like, I really have a a lot of honor for that. And, like, your mom and Miriam are two people of, like, my goal is to feel comfortable challenging them. Mm. And for me right now, they're, like, word is kind of like law in some ways. And so how does the the, the challenge work? (laughs) Yeah, I do think— because my mom is who she is, I have maybe always been a little bit more comfortable challenging people who are, like, seen in that way yeah. or who are just, like, older than me. Mm. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I think we also have a relationship that's, like, holds some, like, care and support for how taxing the work is. Yeah. She has been going <laughs> for a long time and, yeah. like, doesn't really take breaks. No. Um, and, you know, maybe doesn't even really want other people to. <laughs> um, it's kind of remark Like, it's a real stamina thing. But, yeah, we I think we also kind of bond and support each other over the taxingness of it. And because we're family, like, encourage each other to take care of ourselves. So, yeah, I mean, I remember she had written the book about Ella Baker. I was, like, eight and. Mm-hmm. Basically spent the summer, like, road tripping with her to, like, random college bookstores and, like, (laughs) I don't know, like, sitting in the back. But I think I did absorb some of that stuff, even however filtered it was through an eight-year-old's brain. Yeah, I think it's, That's quite a book tour to be on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's definitely relevant. And um, I'm grateful to have— a lineage of people who've been who've been trying to to do this work and um, to try to change the world in a, a really way that's very tangibly connected to me. Sometimes I wish I had I could just like be in a family space and it was just that, but yeah. it never is. And you know, it's it's life. <laughs> What's something you think you've helped her understand? Um, I definitely think I've pushed her around abolition. Mm. Mm. I don't think it's something that has been central to her political frameworks or offerings. And so I think that's something I've pushed her around and something I think, you know, she has some critiques and I've helped connect the dots to like, you know, abolition is and has to be like a anti-capitalist fight as well. And so we've had some of those conversations Mm -hmm. um, and she's come to, you know, we don't see it exactly the same, but see it more my way <laughs> um yeah yeah shout out to moms super <laughs> shout out to moms all right uh, let's check out let's and check get out, out of here play, or check out yeah you know we got to play the game okay. 
you want to start off? <sighs> yeah, I can start. So feeling, one, of gratitude. Uh, two, like, I've noticed the pattern of, like, conversations I'm really excited about or folks that I have, like, admiration or or reverence for, trying to, like, make sure that that feels genuine and doesn't make people uncomfortable. Since we are peers, like, trying to make sure that you hear and it is documented the way that I see or how impactful I feel you to be, while also making the space to, like, just talk and shoot the shit. And then, and then the um, the we're not gonna walk walk it back. I think is mm. really important to like always forefront. Like we are living with these scars and these wounds in a widespread intersectional way, and there is power in naming them. And that's how we address them, not by trying to invisibilize or erase them. Yeah, that was mine also. Ah. Was that idea <laughs> of there is no nonfiction past to get back to? Right. It's about what do we do with the contradictions and the violences that we have, and how do we move forward from here together? And figure out how to try to address, acknowledge, and heal harm. That was really useful that you say it that way. How about you? How are you feeling? What's sticking with you? I think the question around home, where do you feel most at home, is sticking with me. And Hmm. yeah, just like wanting to continually define that, even if it's not always a place. And the conversation we're having around what are the things that people feel like they're not enough of to come into our political homes. Um, and I completely we, forgot we had that conversation. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how do we create political homes that are welcoming and open to the people who deserve to to get to come inside? Mm. Yeah. I see. All right. All right. We have a little game that we'd like to close out with. Okay. You look nervous. <laughs> I'm curious. You're ready to roll, yeah. It's rooted in accountability. Here at Ergo, <laughs> we playfully yet seriously deploy beef as an accountability tool. Beef with the 20th century. So spanning from 1900 to 1999, (laughs) we're calling out all the fuck shit, right? Like R&B singers did not emerge out of a vacuum. They emerged in the 20th century. And so it can be anything. It doesn't have to be R&B singers, but any historical figure, any phenomenon, uh, 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 an event or war or something. Policy. Person. Beef with the 20th century. Asha, go. Okay, I have beef with white lesbian separatists who are transphobic. Okay, all right, all right. (laughs) Because I want to be able to stand in, like, both queerness and being a lesbian in an identity and— you know, the like white women just like fuck shit up, <laughs> um, and yeah, like it, you didn't have to be that way. <laughs> <laughs> they made some communes out there that had some very so separatist, but it was transphobic. That was yeah. I mean, I think this is like the lineage when people talk about like turfs, yeah. trans exclusionary mm-hmm. radical, radical feminist. That's kind of like mm. the lineage of where. Trans-exclusionary um, radical feminism. Oh, yeah. This is a this is a thing. Yes. Th- this is what happens when you miss Twitter. Yeah. If you, There was, like, <laughs> this whole festival called the Mich- Michigan Women's Festival went on for many years, and there was, like, a lot of controversy around this, and they ended up shutting it down over being called out to to include uh, trans women in the festival. And they were like, nah. It's like, yeah. We'd it's rather a whole not do thing. it. It's a whole thing. It's a, it is a whole thing, and it's a conversation, I think, for a, a bigger conversation for another episode. But it, it, that's so an that's excellent 20th beef. century beat. Thank you. Thank you. And right in the pocket. As a corollary shout out, shout out to H. Melton Women and Children First Bookstore, who've been dealing with some like violence from turfs outside of their bookstore, which is one of the 
biggest employers of trans women in the city and just does really amazing work. And there's been like signs posted and people protesting outside over the last couple of months. So shout out to Women and Children First for holding it down. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. Okay, I guess I have to do research. Sometimes you got to go on the internet, David. I, I'm, I, I'm down. I'm, I'm going to check this out. <laughs> Asha, excellent beef. Thank excellent, you so excellent beef. And what a wonderful conversation. We appreciate yeah, you so much. Thank you all so much. How can folks find you and your work in the ways you want to be found? <laughs> <laughs> the shred I'm the around shred. in Chicago. I live here. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. It's, you know, at Asha Poesis from my made that when I was 16. Uh-huh. Um, wow, you've held on to the handle. Yeah, I know. I, I think I am going to change it soon, but okay. for now. Yeah. Can I share, like, my email address? Sure. sure. Is that weird? If you want people to email you. You can email me at asha at byp100.org. Are there any know, emails you don't to want to get? So just for just our listener, if they're, like, drafting their email. Like, let's create a preemptive spam filter. <laughs> I don't want to hear white people just telling me what they think I should be doing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to also throw that in 20th century beef as well. <laughs> I feel like I feel like that goes like way I've back. I've gotten some back. of those yeah, emails, yeah. like all caps, like you need to be, and it's like what? Wow, yeah. I don't know. We need to create a separate folder for that. Only <laughs> a white splaining filter. <laughs> Thank uh, you so much for coming through. We're at Ergo Radio. I'm Damon underscore AF. I'm at Ergo Kiss, and we'll be back next week with another person reshaping the culture of Chicago and beyond for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. This episode of Ergo is sponsored by Backblaze. Get unlimited computer backup for Macs or PCs for just six bucks a month. Backup your docs, music, photos, videos, drawing, podcasts, projects, all your data. Restore files anywhere you have internet. Even if you're off the grid, they can overnight a hard drive to you with your backup on it. Over 40 billion files restored. That's a lot of files. Get yourself a free, fully featured trial at backblaze.com slash cpc. Make sure you visit backblaze.com slash cpc so they know where you came from and continue to support us here at Ergo. Go there, play with it, start protecting yourself from potential bad times. Start today.